0: Hello, and welcome to the latest podcast from the London Institute of Banking and Finance, lifelong partners for financial education. You can learn more about us and about our qualifications at
1: www.libf.ac.uk.
2: This is the fourth that we've done. We've looked at retail banking, we've looked at insurance, we've looked at uh, uh, equity markets, but we haven't looked at um, the the most complicated, I guess, the capital markets. Um, there's a lot to be said about this, some of which is said in my invitation, uh, but fortunately, we have a rather distinguished panel. The running order of the panel is that uh, Philip Taliaferro from Broadridge will uh, provide what I hope is a sort of 35,000 feet view of the key issues that are exercising the capital markets at the present time. And then we'll sort of run through Octavio Morenzi from Opimas, uh, Monica Somerville from uh, TAB, uh, I guess slightly with the tech background there, Kirsten Winters from IHS Market, and Vivek Agarwal from, uh, from Wipro. Uh, so that's the running order. I'm hoping that uh, they will each speak for about 10 minutes, but there will be plenty of opportunity for questions both in between speakers and uh, at the end. Um, <coughs> I, my, my colleague Jane Fuller, who can't be here, sent me a little note identifying what she thought as the big issues that are exercising the markets at the present time. And obviously one is the low number of IPOs, especially in the UK this market, uh, this year. And she, she pointed to some of the work that John Kay had done, finding that equity markets are primarily for the trading of secondary stocks rather than providing significant amounts of new money. In the debt markets, she was obviously very concerned about QE and the suppression of sovereign yields. And then, of course, there is the issue that has all come come around, the, the Woodford scandals, uh, the assumption of liquidity uh, and what happens when liquidity isn't there. And then, finally, the great re-regulation, looking for standardization of derivatives contracts. Those were her four big issues, in addition, I suppose, some of the issues that I raised here. But uh, much more important is what our panel thinks. Um, this is not under the Chatham House rule. This is being recorded. Uh, so please, but other than uh, please, don't let that stop you intervening if you feel that you d- you want clarification from any of the speakers. Uh, please interrupt, find out what uh, what they really really want to say, and disagree with them if you have to. Anyway, I'm Andrew Hilton, and I will give you first of all Philip Taliaferro. Philip, talk talk us uh, talk us through from 35,000 feet, or if you can't do 35,000 feet, 15,000 feet will do.
3: Okay. <laughs> um, thanks for the opportunity to speak. My name is Philip Tolliver. I'm with uh, Broadridge Financial Solutions. My role is head of strategy for Europe and Asia. Um, I'll just, as uh, Andrew mentioned, give you kind of a brief tour of what's going on overall in the market. Um, the first overwhelming issue since the financial crisis has been ROE. And so, as most of you know, um, banks required or expected to exceed their uh, cost of equity capital in the form of ROE, um, and that had been severely depressed since the financial crisis. Well, the good news story is that today actually the industry average is now exceeding the cost of equity capital um, for the first time since the crisis. The bad news for us here is actually that um, the European banks are about half that of their American counterparts. Um, And so what you see overall is while while the whole seems to be looking much more healthy, actually that's masking important regional differences. It's also worth noting that the Chinese banks are significantly beating their European counterparts um, and are now entering new parts of the market that we haven't seen them do in the past.
2: But tell us about the European ones. When you say European banks, there is no such thing as a European bank. It's Italian, it's German, it's what?
3: Well, there are European headquartered uh, global or multi-regional banks. And yeah, that's but what
2: it, where are the problems?
3: Um, Barclays, Deutsche Bank... Societe (laughs) Generale, I mean, I could could go on. Um, So um, yeah, and and it's also worth noting that that's not just about performance on the balance sheet, that's also about market share. So what you saw over the last um, eight years or so is that American banks have grown their market share in Europe by 10 percentage points, while the European banks have lost 10 percentage points of market share In north america so it's it's a troubling view both in terms of top line and in terms of economic performance on the balance sheet if you look overall at what's happening in um in in the world of um capital markets the market's growing finally for the first time in a long time and and is expected over the next few years to grow at roughly one percent Kager. however that's of course below the the uh, rate of inflation and um there's big differences in in business mix so flow businesses continue to be challenged um we'll expect that those will grow potentially at a negative rate um and there's all those are also negative contributors to roe so you think about um equity flow businesses fic flow businesses and all of the banks are sort of rethinking their level of involvement in these markets and by the way it's even more complicated than that because when you dig into cash cash securities versus um, their counterparts in the derivatives market. MA is expected to grow slightly. Security services completely flat. And in the corporate world, there's actually the lone bright spot. In any other industry, we would say this is a pathetic growth rate. But in banking, we would say the 2% that you'd get out of uh, growth in the transaction banking world is good. Um, again, important regional differences there flat to no growth in the European, uh, general European area, Asia growing. North America growing slightly. I'm going to turn briefly to asset management only for context setting, because I think it relates back to the general story about what's going on in um, capital markets. Massive f- movement to passives, passive products, and these products exist at, you know, 5, 10 percent of the um, revenue associated with an active product. And historically, they moved much faster in in North America, for example, where the consumers tend to be more aggressive about changing financial products. That's changing right now. And the fastest growing asset managers today in Europe are the likes of BlackRock and Vanguard and Fidelity. So that's a big change that we've seen over the last few years. And it's hitting some of the local asset managers. So Schroeder's, for instance, in Aberdeen are seeing um, net outflows and are, are blaming this in part on the rise of Um, Some of those large passive providers, and while you may sort of say that's not really relevant today's market uh, discussion about capital markets, it's highly relevant from the standpoint that those revenues that the asset managers earn find their way into the banks in the form of the security services business and in the form of the flow businesses. So keep that in mind. There's new forms of disruption um, hitting parts of the market. So in the M and A world. It's the existence of some some new boutiques that are arriving on the scene. In the IPO world, which we talked about earlier, there's been, there's fewer listed companies than there have been historically, half of what there were in 1997 in both the US and UK. Um, And an interesting, I think, interesting development just in the last few months is the change in, um, what we're now seeing is something called a direct listing. I don't know who's followed Spotify or what's gonna happen with Slack's IPO, but they're not really IPOs. So the purpose of entering primary markets, which has traditionally was to raise capital, really isn't the purpose anymore. There's no net capital raise going on in in most of these new deals, and those in particular are just one day we flip a switch and existing shareholders can trade in the public markets as opposed to a closed private market, uh, accessible only to um, existing insiders. Um, In the market making and flow businesses, new, uh, not new entrants, but more mature entrants than they have been historically, like Citadel and Virtue, are really changing the way that markets are made and creating uh, new forms of liquidity. And of course, there's new players entering in the transaction side of the uh, capital markets equation. So um, your traditional payments providers, like a MasterCard and Visa, are now in that space. We've seen a lot of consolidation in uh, in the payments world. And then there's lots of changes going on as well in transaction banking. The regulatory market, I think, is actually starting to become market. uh, Regulatory change is starting to become somewhat of a bright spot. So since the financial crisis, we've been weathering a storm of the Basel regulations, FRTB, CCAR, which is commonly known as the stress test. The unbundling of fees under the MIFID II regime, and those have been massive changes for the banks in how they make money, and how they're measured, and how their balance sheets are evaluated. Um, So that onslaught is actually starting to dissipate, which I think is a good thing, Um, and so the market's starting to sort of absorb some of those changes, and you're seeing that in ROE performance. I should also note, though, that the operational regulations, as I would call them, which change behaviors and the way markets sort of operate but don't fundamentally change the balance sheet or the way trading works, are continuing. So things like um, securities financing transaction regulation, um, some CSDR, which changes the way depositories work, uh, the shareholder rights directive, which changes the way that um, corporate secretaries interact with shareholders and then new rules around um, disclosure of fees associated with MIFID II in the wealth distribution and asset management worlds. Um, I would also add that again, as with some of my earlier comments, big regional differences, um, it's it's probably worth noting that the change in administration in Washington um, two years ago has really shaken up um, the approach to regulation there and even regulations that are on the books are not being particularly well enforced. Um, and of course, the US tax changes of a year and a half ago have really um, uh, changed the, the bottom line performance of the banks. So um, what does all of this mean? I would say that today is a period of great challenges for the, for the banks, particularly here in this region, but also of opportunity. And when I say opportunity, I think that the disruption that's happening um, actually creates, with the existing market position that the banks have, um, despite the challenges that exist around that, they have a, a really unique opportunity to, uh, to replatform, to exit underperforming businesses. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess as a politician would say, uh, don't let a crisis go to waste. So I think it's actually um, it can be a, a very exciting time. And, of course, I've, I've skipped over intentionally some of the big changes that are happening from a technology innovation perspective because my panelists are, are more qualified than I to talk about that. I'm well, sure I'm under my 10 minutes, but,
2: you've but all fire away. You've also skipped over one thing that we in Europe are really quite interested in, and that's capital markets union. I mean, is that something that will help the Europeans catch up with the U.S.? Uh, you, you, you appeared to be much more optimistic about the short-term future anyway in the U.S., even even yeah. regulatory relief under the Trump administration, but the Europeans are at least making an effort in the direction of CMU.
0: There's a slight thing called Brexit that might get in the way of that particular project.
2: But. Well, we invented CMU. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you do you have a, a view on on, on CMU?
3: I, I I think it's an exciting development, a potential development, but I. I don't think that in isolation it fixes some of the challenges I described.
2: For the Europeans, the, yeah. the challenges are primarily the, the entrenched position of the banks and the weakness of the banks and the inability of the banks to earn their way out of the problems that they face.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I think that's part of the story. I think... Um, So I, I, I recognize that I'm an American up here talking about blah, 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 American banks are doing really well. Um, so take it, take it with a <laughs> grain of salt. Badly. But badly. But yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, best house in a bad neighborhood. Um, so I, th- I think Americans by nature tend to be more ruthless about, um, and American businessmen, business people tend to be more ruthless about changing uh, business direction and exiting underperforming businesses and making drastic cost cuts and changes that are painful. And um, I don't know if that's a fair, I don't think it's a fair cultural generalization, but it's certainly borne out in the performance of the banks since the crisis. And so I think you could look at the performance of a number of the banks that I mentioned earlier and say to yourself, they probably had an opportunity to exit underperforming businesses or replatform or be a more aggressive earlier uh, in the aftermath of the crisis than they have been and that hangover is what they're dealing with today.
2: QE? um, What impact does QE have on the capital markets as far as you're concerned?
3: I would say um, firstly that as a a shareholder you sort of look at um, the performance of the stock market and you say well that's exciting it's going up because uh, the discount rate on those future cash flows is pretty low. I would say, if you're a bank, actually, it's kind of a mixed bag. But in general, uh, banks tend to like higher interest rates. So I'm not convinced that the quote unquote frothy markets per se, um, driven by QE, are are necessarily a bad thing for banks. Um, but welcome other opinions on that. But for, for
2: the last two years, we were looking at the next move in interest rates being up. Now we're looking for the next move in interest rates being down, down, down. Um, are you, are you just talking specifically about Bank of England? <laughs> no, I was talking specifically about the Fed. Three quarter points priced yeah. into the market. Um, and I'm just curious. I mean, you know, this delays the inevitable rise in interest rates. Presumably at some stage interest rates will rise. And I just wonder, you know, in the old uh, Warren Buffett statement, um, when the tide goes out, we find yeah. out who's not wearing trunks.
3: Yeah, I. I um, so I think it's all that's all a fair statement. I, I would say it's easy to look at um, interest rates in historical context and say that they're outrageously low and, you know, that doesn't make sense and we're sort of setting ourselves up for disaster. I, I, and maybe that is true, but I would, I would put that in the frame of we live in a world that is becoming increasingly technologically and service oriented as opposed to manufacturing and hard goods oriented. And, um, we're adjusting to a new normal where you know the likes of an uber is worth 70 billion dollars or whatever the number is today and um and so the capital intensity of creating large franchise type businesses has been forever changed from what it was you know 50 years ago and so uh, with lower capital intensity businesses you do we probably are going through like a macro period of adjustment whereby uh, interest rates will be permanently lower than they had been historically.
2: Any questions for Phil? Questions from, uh, we, we do have a roving mic if anybody has something to say. From the panel? I mean, Let me, let me ask Octavio. Don't, to, don't ask me questions, correct what I said. <laughs> <laughs> questions or points. Octavio, tell us your view on this.
0: Well, I, I'm, I'm actually the one who volunteered Philip to speak first, and, and now I, I regret that because he said everything I wanted to say. My <laughs> ten minutes. So instead of say, talking what I was going to talk about, I'm just going to talk about what I want to talk about. And I suppose there's there's a few things on on, on Philip's uh, presentation that I just like to underline and echo, and, and maybe add some colour and texture to. Um, You talked a lot about capital markets. I I would include asset management in that and you touched on the point of a a flow to passive assets which have far, far lower management fees and far more limited operations and trading volumes behind them um, is the kind of thing that basically a box can do uh, quite easily. There, There is, even in passive investment, there's a surprising amount of manual intervention that takes place. You would think that's the kind of thing that could be just algorithmed away. Uh, But there are still traders, portfolio managers who take care of those things, who think about market timing and when to buy and sell, and when there's redemptions and things of that sort. Those are all the kinds of things that might be uh, automated away quite easily. Um, What is relatively newer is the the kind of cost pressure we've seen on the sell side amongst banks and broker-dealers has now expanded to, to, to the buy side and asset managers as well. So in most of the conversations I've had over the course of the past year, with COOs at asset management firms, the topic that recurrently comes up now is outsourcing. Like, what can we get rid of? Which areas of the business can we, not jettison, but uh, provide to someone else who maybe has greater scale and and lower costs, and how do we control and manage those costs? And that seems to be the name of the game now in the asset management industry as well. Interesting enough, that has sort of extended right through the value chain, not just from fund accounting and back office uh, operations and things like that, but now it's expending right into the front office. So there's an increased interest in doing things like outsourcing trading desks, uh, a thing that perhaps in the past most asset managers, except for very small ones who didn't have the sufficient scale, would not really have considered doing. So now we're seeing some very large asset managers who might have a hundred billion or more in assets under management, thinking about getting rid of the trading function, saying, do we actually need this? And it's starting in, in sort of a, a more limited space. Uh, by basically saying, are there certain asset classes where we're sub-scale? So uh, in a conversation with a large Japanese asset manager, they basically said, you know, we've got a trading desk in New York, and we have a full-time staff there trading U.S. equities, but frankly, we don't invest that much in the U.S. market, so we, we don't know what those traders actually do all day, and we're afraid to ask anymore. <laughs> um, so maybe we should outsource that to someone who does have sufficient volume to keep them busy uh, not twenty four hours a day, but at least you know from market open to market close. So that is a a, a trend that is hitting the asset management world. It's sort can, of. Uh, Could you
2: just expand a little bit on that? This is sort of white white tailing. I mean, if you are dealing with that original as, asset manager, you don't actually know who is managing the funds because the, the same name is on the uh, is on the statement.
0: Well, n- no, I, I'm not talking about uh, about labelling the, the 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 asset the asset management. So the the decision about what which assets to invest in r- remains very much with the asset manager. Uh, if they start to outsource that, you have to ask yourself what mm. are they even doing at all. Um, so what are they? And which, I mean, that might be an interesting question. Like what, you know, they might just retain the distribution end of things as possible. They might not make any investment decisions at all. But I think they're not an asset manager anymore. They're just a reseller. But what they have outs- started to outsource is the actual trading function. So, there's a, a draw separation between the portfolio manager and the trader. So, the portfolio manager decides what to buy and what to sell, and the trader will decide when to buy it and sell it minute by minute, or day by day, or over the course of a week or two of its larger positions they're getting in and out of. And that has traditionally been a, a, a function that certainly asset managers above a certain size very much wanted to keep in house and have uh, un- under their wing and now we're thinking about letting go and, and pushing out. And thinking about things right across the board that maybe they hadn't considered in the past in terms of uh, pushing out to, to outsourcing providers and, and, and getting out of. So That's certainly a trend that we, we, we see there. Um, Philip also touched a bit about sort of the troubled European investment banks. And I think there's there's two that really stand out to me, which would be Credit Suisse and, and Deutsche Bank. Uh, though I would say the Japanese uh, broker dealers aren't do exactly covering themselves in glory either. So. Perhaps we're not in such bad uh, company as the European banks. Um, but I think if you look at someone uh, like Deutsche Bank, it's sort of telling to, to, to talk to senior managers there who lo- run lines of business. And the story f- fairly consistently that they'll tell you is that they, they sort of feel that running a line of business at Deutsche Bank, they're not really there to generate revenues or generate profits for the bank. They're more there to support the technology and operations group. And at the end of every quarter, they re- receive a large bill uh, from from technology and operations. So they have no idea what's in it. And it's an enormous amount. And it, it it sort of pushes them into being unprofitable. I suppose one CEO after another is trying to get that under control at Deutsche Bank and not with any sort of astounding or remarkable success over the course of the past decade almost. Um, and a, I think a bank like that faces the problem that they have decided. And this is, I think, somewhat common throughout the industry, that they've Tried to be present in almost any market around the world, and as a result, have a lot of operations that are subscale. Uh, so, there'll be a primary dealer in almost every government bond market in the world, there'll be a market maker in every equity market there is, they'll trade corporate bonds everywhere around the world and be market makers in, the, in those businesses. And as a result, you have a, a collection of sort of subscale businesses where you don't have the scales of economy that you need to get a high a return on equity and a high return on your assets. Uh, and so the whole thing sort of starts to look a bit uncomfortable. And there it becomes important to start thinking about what lines of business are we in and what lines of business do we r- remain in, what do we withdraw in, and where do we have the necessary scale to really actually compete? Because I think that's what the the, the issue is really about. This is an industry that is largely commoditized, I think, or, or rapidly moving in that direction. We see that on the asset management front quite Clearly, in the broker-dealer side, I think that's been clear for some time. The services in terms of equities trading or fixed income trading that people provide are largely interchangeable and, and replaceable from one another. There is not much difference between them. And there has been sort of a, a, a tendency to basically sort of provide the average. So if you look at how a trader now is, is measured and compensated, is basically trying as hard as possible to be average. Uh, and that, that's the name of the game. And in that kind of business, it's, it's really all about scale. A commoditized average business is going to be all about scale. So re- reaching the necessary scale there, I, I think, is is what the game is about. And sort of picking your battles there carefully.
2: When did when did that change? Because that is a change. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, one looked at Deutsche and one thought, um, when it bought Deutsche Bankers Trust and so on and so forth, you know, that it was the future. Uh, when did when did this the game of scale really catch out? banks like Deutsche Um, I I suppose
0: uh, I I don't know if if I can say that it it really you know there's one precipitating event that I can point to Uh, I think if if you look at someone at Deutsche it was really the financial crisis and it has not recovered from that since then so it's been that basically that decade since 2008 that they have never recovered from and there's been a a hope on the part of many banks I think that volumes will come back at some stage and commissions will go back up and if we just you know keep at it for a long time eventually that business will return to its former glory and I think that's a bit of a a delusion overall that's that's not going to happen it's going to have to as as Philip pointed out there's going to be some hard decisions about cost cutting about exiting certain businesses about retaining other ones otherwise it's 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 not going to to function but I will say there are some bright spots in the industry too and and one of the one of the really bright spots, I suppose, are, are sort of the infrastructure providers and exchanges in particular who have profit margins that are absolutely phenomenal. So, if you look at your typical exchange, they have a profit margin of 60, 70%, in some cases, even more than that. Now, these are businesses that are very much technology focused, scale focused, uh, and that is the kind of model I think that investment banks and broker dealers are going to have to emulate is that kind of business, basically recognizing it's all about scale simple processes and and making those things work. Uh, If you look at exchanges, one area that's been particularly attractive to them is the whole area of selling data. So they've done astronomical profits on, on on their data businesses. It's not unusual to see profit margins there of 80 or 90%, depending on the exchange that you look at. So the data business has been a phenomenally successful one. And that brings you back to data more generally in the industry, that is of course a key issue as well there are massive reams of data out there and trying to digest them and interpret them and come up with investment strategies based on them, I think is one of the big challenges that we're currently looking at uh, and is gonna be the challenge in the coming few years is getting these massive data under control and trying to be able to identify trading patterns in them and making those work. And the final point I wanted to make is, is about sort of the workforce of the future. What has always surprised me are the enormous differences that you see in terms of level of productivity from one institution to another. And it's highlighted to my mind in, in an outfit here ba- based in London called XTX Markets, uh, which is a big FX uh, market maker. It's not a household name, unlike all the other banks who are basically big in, 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 in the foreign exchange markets. But a couple of years ago, we were pushing together a list of the largest FX banks, and one of our analysts put together a list, and I saw this company on it called xtx markets at number three and i'd never heard of them i'm embarrassed to say and i said how how is it possible that someone is number three in a list that i've been looking at an industry i've been looking at my whole life suddenly appears there where, where did they come from uh and so i decided to call them and pay them a visit and say who are you and what do you do and they said well you know we have sort of a whole bunch of artificial intelligence and some boxes and we've got 50 people in the company and that's it and we have no real ambitions of ever going above 200. Now they've expanded to other asset classes since then, not as, uh, as successfully as in, in foreign exchange. But with 50 people, they were able to come to the number three FX trading firm in the world in terms of volume, which is absolutely astounding. There are banks out there that need several thousand to do that. So there's a huge disparity there in terms of productivity, in terms of being able to set up your systems A lot of those people actually came from Deutsche Bank. They had previously been in FX trading at Deutsche Bank and said we would never have been allowed to do this at Deutsche Bank. We could never have got this through risk management, compliance, and legal and operations, and the technology people would have messed it up anyway, so we decided to do it by ourselves and and did so with stunning success. And I think that's kind of the model too, is that one has to recognize that a lot of these things can be done with far, far lower headcounts. And that's going to be, I think, the path the industry goes on over the course of the next few years, is a recognition that there's going to be some very significant headcount reductions in this industry um, of 20 30% overall in in terms of that coming down as things become more automated, as firms become uh, more adept at using technology. Uh, It's not uncommon to talk with a head of equity trading where it basically says don't know what my sales traders do all day. You know, Once in a while, they have a phone call from a client who asks, how does this algorithm work? But other than that, uh, all the order flow comes in electronically and goes out electronically, and, and that's that's the way the business will evolve. So I, I would say on, on the positive side, there are pockets of the industry that are do, doing very well, uh, particularly those firms that are focused on scale, on simple processes, on simplifying things and, and making things move in that direction. There is an area that is doing well in terms of uh, advanced analytics in terms of data and managing sort of esoteric data flows and trying to find and identify trading patterns in them. And those firms, those kind of quant hedge funds and, and trading houses, have done quite well over the course of the past few years. Not so much the past six months because a lot of other people have entered into that space and make it more difficult. But that certainly is a bright point there. I mentioned the exchanges, but finally, I think the point to underline is that we're probably looking at an industry that might go through the same kind of change that agriculture went in the 1940s and 50s with the mechanization where there was just an enormous reduction in the number of employees working in that space. I don't expect it to be that dramatic in financial services, but I do expect that to be what plays out over the course of the next coming few years.
2: So here we are in the London Institute of Banking and Finance training the next generation of unemployed. <laughs> um, well, what can one say? Questions, uh, questions for, for Octavio? If, <coughs> yeah. Could you just identify yourself?
1: I'm Kishan from Vipro. Uh, the question specifically on uh, the areas that you touch upon are mostly the companies which are born digital, right? That's why you see a lot of difference in the productivity and the efficiency from the outcome perspective. Uh, so where, where you spoke about the data mon- monetize- monetization, right? Where do you see sub- some, some services coming out? Like, do you see some asset management operation as a service risk as a service or uh, regulation as a service coming out uh, to benefit this uh, data monetization piece?
0: Uh, d- definitely. So, I, I see almost everything as a service but that comes back to sort of the, the, the idea of of reaching the necessary scale in, in certain businesses to make that work. So, I talked about trading, uh, outsourced trading. You can think of that as trading as a service and that's probably a direction that we'll go in. Data as a service, yes. Compliance as a service, yes. So, firms are increasingly looking to to i wouldn't say outsource things but certainly have people who have the expertise and scale to do it at a lower cost than you could do it internally so you mentioned compliance uh, that's certainly been a huge headache over the course of the, of, of the past few years as philip mentioned he had a whole list of acronyms in terms of all the regulations i've been struck with finally that has sort of stabilized a bit um but that's the kind of thing that's fairly difficult to automate initially. So when you have new regulations come out, the tendency has been to throw lots of people at it to, 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 to solve it. Once that sort of settles out, you can start to automate that. So that's the phase that we're in, uh, where firms have had to sort of beef up enormously in terms of their compliance stuff, and now they're getting to the point where are saying, well, maybe we can do this in a more efficient way. We've, we've placated the regulators now. Uh, let's figure out how we can fulfil those functions more effectively. One is to become better at the technology internally. Another one is to rely on a compliance as a
2: service provider to do that for you. Where are human skills going to continue to be required in this industry?
0: Well, I suppose uh, if, if we're saying now technology is going to play a crucial role. It always has, or it has at least for the past 40, 50 years. But increasing, that's the direction it's going to go. Then obviously technology skills and terms of humans can be important, data analysis skills, uh, programming, AI, things of that sort are going to become important. So uh, any decent trader now, I shouldn't say any decent trader, the, the better traders are now able to program in R and Python and things like that. It,
2: but that is not something
0: you would have seen 10 years ago.
2: If something goes wrong, they'll want the COBOL and FORTRAN people back. I don't know about FORTRAN, but COBOL's going to be hot, yeah.
0: I don't know how much is really programmed in FORTRAN, but uh, in in COBOL, certainly, there's a lot of stuff still out there on mainframes running, and, and that needs to be uh, still maintained, and uh, that's probably an area also for uh, as a service.
2: Uh,
4: I think, actually... Kirsten had a, had a question for yeah. you. Yeah, I mean, you brought up the hot topic of, um, you know, sort of data fees in relation to exchanges. And obviously, I mean, the SEC recently blocked a fee increase. Um, I know the European side is looking at it. I mean, how do you see... You, you've highlighted that as a, as a you know, hot, well-performing spot. Do, do you think that's going to continue to 2025, or do you think there might be changes? Well,
0: um that that so much depends on the regulators, right? And I, I hate to try and predict what regulators do because they are uh, 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 not sort of bound by um, market forces, as it, as it were. Um, I think the exchanges, when I say it's been a, a, a bright spot, certainly it's been a bright spot for them. It's been sort of a rather ugly spot for the people who have to pay for the data. So... Uh, there's no shortage of of sell-side firms who complain bitterly about the market data fees that they have to pay to the exchange and say you're ripping us off and this is a monopoly and this is a cartel that you've created and it's our data anyway Uh, you're just selling it back for us at a thousand percent markup. Um, I suspect the data business, the appetite for data is not going to go away anytime soon. That's going to be sort of One of the key elements and it's not so much that sourcing the data it's rather being able to analyze it and 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 find patterns in it and use some sort of predictive analytics on it that's going to be the key thing Um, but i think the exchanges market data businesses will continue to do quite well Um, i suppose in in the european union there's been rumblings because under mifid one and mifid two it was fairly explicitly said that uh these, these execution venues must provide that data at a, on a re, quote reasonable commercial basis without actually defining what that meant. Uh, and so now we're making the rounds on that and <coughs> figuring out what does that actually mean. I think a lot of people expected market data fees to come down as a result of that language in MiFID II, and that has not happened. If anything, it's gone the opposite direction, um, though not as dramatically as, as I think some people w- would claim. I mean. I, I saw a study that SIFMA in the U.S. put out uh, recently looking at market data fees, and, and in particular, they, they looked at the New York Stock Exchange's market data fees, and they had the rather exorbitant claim that they had increased their fees by over 1,000%. Now, I couldn't find much to support that as, as a uh, uh, really having any sort of substance behind it. Their, their revenues from that line of business have not increased 1,000%, but much, much less than that. Um, but uh, it is certainly a sticky topic right now.
5: Can I just yeah, Monica to that? Because that's also an area that we look at. I mean, I have a slightly different point of view in that I do think that the um, exchange data party is coming to an end. I think that the SEC has made noises, they've just put out some guidance. Um, it's not It's not SEC guidance, but it was sort of a staff notice, but it does give much more stricter rules around um, how increases should be priced in in the future. That's really creating a lot of surprise in the US. I was just there last week, um, and and really everyone feels that that's, that's a bit of a turning point where the exchanges are going to really have to justify price increases in the future. At the same time, we're seeing Europe... Um, it's true that not much has happened. In terms of the prices for exchange data here, um, we are hearing rumblings that ESMA really is going to push forward with a consolidated tape of some sort because there hasn't been a commercial solution coming forward, and that's partially because of the vague language that they had. It's not really been um, commercially viable to do that, but there, there is, I know behind the scenes, a lot of people are looking at what they can do to move that forward. Um, so I think in terms of the data, data will always have value, absolutely, you have to have data now, you have to know how to use it, have what to do with it. But the data that's going to be really valuable is that derived data, that value added data. And that's where that's where people will continue to be able to charge a lot of money. And I think the end users will be more than willing to pay for it. But that sort of raw data, that the only value you're doing is consolidating it, I think that's going to have a, a lid put on it, which is going to then, you have to take a look at the exchange um, revenues because they have kind of relied on that growth in data costs over the last, I don't know how many years, when, you know, things like issuance fees, other ends of the market have kind of come down. So they will need to look at that carefully.
2: There was a question there. Yeah, if you could just... Uh, uh, um, what sort of health is universal banking going to be in, in 2025? Because we see some Europeans retreating and some outsourcing. But if you look at the US banking sector, you know, the big three, the big four are still
0: doing everything. HSBC is pretty much still doing everything. And you you wonder again, why should equity investors, you know, want to buy everything when they buy a Bank of America stock? But yet it seems to plow on. I think the answer is in the question, really, isn't it? I mean, I I, I honestly don't know. I mean, obviously some banks will continue to to, to pursue that model. Uh, Other banks will be tempted to to jettison it and, and, and get rid of certain lines of business. So... Someone like a J.P. Morgan, I, I don't see, or Bank of America, I think are, are clearly going to continue on a universal banking uh, path, and they've done that very well. Uh, some other firms have not. So we talked about Deutsche Bank or Credit Suisse or people like that, I think might be very tempted to get rid of... Are you
2: saying you can't run a universal bank outside the U, uh, outside the U.S. base? No, I don't think I said that. So anymore. who? Who outside the U.S. can get it right? Is who? HSBC... It's it's enough just, to, I, I mean...
0: I don't think it's really a question, uh, because frankly, I don't think a universal bank sort of really gets run as a universal bank. There are are virtually no shared infrastructures within that. Each line of business basically is a separate entity. So a universal bank is almost like a portfolio of specialized banks. Uh, I don't think there's anything particularly... um, that lends itself. It's a bit like someone who, like GE, who makes nuclear power plants and jet engines. Those businesses don't have that much to do with each other. Um, so the fact that those U.S. universal banks have done well is more a reflection, I think, of the, of the U.S. economy and, and, and their positioning within that, that market. Um, I don't think there's anything fundamentally that would not allow a European bank to be a universal bank and, and do that successfully. It's just that there's it's been that more We've all
2: tried it and all of them have failed with the possible exception of HSBC.
0: HSBC, I mean UBS kind of is still in in that mold um, but uh, but how many in the US have really succeeded with it? I mean, how many universal banks are there really there? Once you get out of JP Morgan and Bank of America
2: uh, Goldman Sachs going in through Marcus into retail markets now. Yes, but
0: you know I mean, overall, the retail banking end of things for, for, for bank uh, for for Goldman Sachs is, is kind of trivial. So I don't know if I really would consider Goldman Sachs to be a universal bank. It's it's basically an investment bank that's dabbling in retail banking. Um, but uh, so yeah, I mean, you, you, you can do it. Uh, there's but there's I don't think there's any particular advantage. But to your point, you know, as an investor, can't I just buy individual stocks and and get that kind of exposure?
2: There was somebody else who had a, had a point over there. Yeah, David, David Clark. Yeah. I'm not
6: sure here who, who's here to speak for HSBC, but as a, as a pensioner who saw that um, happening, pensioner of HSBC, I would say that if you go to the suburbs in Manila, Jakarta, certainly elsewhere, certainly in China, you'd find nobody would understand uh, anything other about HSBC than that it was a, a, a very, very, very large retail bank. Um, and if we look at the earnings of HSBC right now and how much of that is concentrated outside the UK and specifically uh, in Asia, the expression Universal Bank for HSBC <coughs> doesn't quite fit. It's a global retail bank. As um, a former German banker as well. I think the Universal Bank expression comes from Germany and certainly for the, from the post-war period. And if I look at Deutsche, and I worked for one of the other big banks, Commerzbank, for a long while, um, and Trinkhaus through HSBC, the German banking system was handicapped from the beginning, and their issue is they've never, ever been able to break the, m- the monopoly of the Sparkassen, the Gio Centrale, and the Landesbanken. And their core business has always been Mittelstand, and they had the great idea of going into investment banking, um, and it didn't work because they couldn't make it work. And at home, their cost base is built in, and the chances of them trading foreign exchange, like XDX, for example, who I know well, is just gone and just simply not there. The structural problems of those institutions strike me as being by far the biggest ones. And I don't know that there's a solution. And it seems to me that it's the core of the capital market union problem, uh, along with pension funds. Until we can change the pension fund approach in Europe and the universal bank approach in Europe, I don't know how we solve or get to a capital market union that works for them. But I've been very interested in the analysis, both from Philip and from Octavio, on that. It'll Maybe I'm wrong in mind, but that's where I would look certainly at HSBC.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think the challenge is beyond Europe as well, right? I mean, I think the, there's two pressures on that universal banking model. you think wholesale markets for a second. Um, you know, go back 10 years, 15 years, you know, you could be in the top 10 of anything and make money, right? There's two pressures on that. One is regulation, which has driven up costs, and the other is technology, which has driven up competition, so I was at a CPMI Oscar event uh, behind closed doors in Paris a couple of months ago, and there was five banks representing, and all of them said, "If you're not in the top three in this se- in a sector in the wholesale OTC market, you're not making money. You know, if you're in the top five, you're doing okay, <coughs> but you're not really, um, you know, you're not really um, progressing and making money like you would have done previously." And you can see it if you look at the number of FCMs in the US; it's halved since the regulation of Dodd Frank. Um, so people just can't offer those services anymore and just withdraw from the market. If you look at clearing brokers and OTC markets worldwide, there's a lot less than there used to be. Most of the names are still there, but they maybe only cover Japan now rather than covering all regions, um, or maybe they only cover Europe rather than covering all regions. So you're seeing people sort of pulling back in specific areas of that universal bank in the wholesale markets and just specialising where they've got the greatest strengths because that's where they've got the competitive advantage. So I think, you know, whether we see that get more and more the case in the next six years may, may well do. Um, and I think, you know, the universal bank between retail, corporate and investment bank, you know, that may stay and, and not be separated. But within yeah. investment banking, you're definitely seeing people cherry picking where to compete because you probably can't invest the capital to compete on all fronts in parallel, unless you happen to be one of the, you know, one or two <laughs> huge ones that are already, are already there. The benefits of incumbency.
2: Monica, um, more generally, your your views on, on the future of uh, of the capital markets?
5: Yeah, so just to give people a background, in case you don't know TAB, um, we do focus specifically on capital markets and asset management, and most of the company focuses on market structure. And I had the fintech practice. And that is not generic fintech. It's very, very focused on the same thing, capital markets and asset management. So we're looking at how emerging technology is really impacting those workflows and business models. Um, so my background, just uh, I, have, I studied engineering. And around the time that I was finishing, there was this derivatives, something called derivatives were booming. And they were looking for some math and science graduates. And that's how I got into Wall Street. Um, just sort of highlight that to say that that's not really a new thing that Wall Street or the city goes looking for math and science people It's been going on for quite a long time um, I've always been very business aligned that said um, very front office focused and I 've been on the buy and the sell side so quite a wide range of experience um, so why, you know where are we now in capital markets what we 've heard here today you know some of these macro issues affecting capital markets so we have you know financial centers moving from west to east we've got the rise of populism regulations increasing, um, and then, of course, I would add to that list the the impact of emerging technology. There has been this huge um, regulatory impact since the crash. That's another issue that we've heard a few times today. So we've had the capital requirements going up, fragmentations um, just increasing in terms of the trading markets. Um, A lot of the regulation has been revolving around this increase in transparency. So that's had an impact as well in a number of areas. Um, Now, technology can help with all of those things, absolutely, but that's not what we really look at when I look at at, the impact of fintech because the capital markets industry has always been using technology to find competitive advantage, not just for efficiency. So, yes, it can help with all those areas. You know, people used to say that... Basically, the only industry that spent more on innovation in technology was Hollywood, and then capital markets was right behind that. Um, I would say now that's really not the case anymore. So since the financial crash, one really big thing we saw was this real reduction in the innovation in the innovative use of, of technology. But of course, technology didn't stop innovating in the last 10 years. In fact, we've had this real explosion of very um, of, of what we call the emerging tech. You know, really, really. Paradigm shifting technology. So, what do I mean by emerging tech? Um, That's things like cloud, artificial intelligence, (coughs) blockchain, IoT, edge computing, even quantum computing. So, it tends to be the kind of things that people, um, you know, kind of are a bit dismissive about. (laughs) So, if you think about any technology that someone's dismissive about, that's the kind of thing that I'm looking at. Um, And here, I think it's interesting to tell a story about cloud use in capital markets. So we started following the adoption of cloud in about 2016. We did a quite um, intensive analysis of how firms were using it. And at that time, and this is not that long ago, it's three years ago. Most of the banks publicly that I spoke to said, oh, we can't touch cloud. It's a reputational risk. We're never – and some people would swear that – As Larry
2: Ellison said, there's no such thing as the cloud. It just means someone else's computer.
5: (laughs) Yes, but someone else that knows a lot more about security than you and I. But, yeah, but it's true. There was this feeling that, you know, publicly you couldn't say anything about cloud because – capital markets was too regulated, you know, it's it just never going to happen. Privately, however, a lot of banks did share with us what they were doing and there was a lot of, you know, the bigger banks, again the bigger American banks tended to be quite innovative in this space, but made me swear I couldn't tell anyone publicly what they were doing. That started to change you know, we came out with a report saying we're we're at a tipping point. You know, firms are starting to see the advantages of cloud, not just for lift and shifting the architecture, but for actually using native cloud, using some of the really innovative parts of that architecture. By the end of the year, we already had some large banks going public, saying that they were going to have a, a cloud strategy. And in fact, um, one of the companies that swore me to secrecy was Goldman Sachs. But they actually, at our fintech festival at the end of the year volunteer their head of cloud strategy that no one had ever heard of before to give the keynote um, speech. And it turns out they've been working on it for five years. So I think that's an interesting look. Because when you think about a lot of these other technologies that are emerging and people are saying no one's doing anything with it, a lot of the leading banks are doing things with it. They're probably doing more than you realize. And then when the change happens, it can move very quickly. So flash forward to now, 2019, and we just recently did another survey on adoption of cloud. Most people don't even think of it as a disruptive technology anymore. They rank it as an enabler, and that is the way it should be looked at because it does enable all these other types of technologies like AI, blockchain, so on and so forth. Um, So that's, you know, I just think that's a good sort of lesson learned. So that's a huge shift in three years. Um, It's fair to say that fintech has been... You know, gets a lot of attention in the retail space for being really disruptive. I think there are good reasons that it's have a harder time disrupting what is traditional capital markets. Um, you know, capital markets has much more complex products than retail. It's it's very global. You know, there are just interconnections across jurisdictions in a way that you don't get necessarily. It's really saddled with legacy infrastructure, but that legacy infrastructure is still quite sophisticated, And, you know, in its day, it was quite cutting edge. So it's hard to untangle all of that legacy infrastructure. And, of course, as we've heard a few people mention here today, capital markets are very siloed. And that's siloed by business, siloed in culture, siloed in technology. So in order to make use of this emerging technology, you really have to apply it at an enterprise level. And to apply it at an enterprise level, you have to start breaking down those those silos. So that groundwork, though, has been laid by a number of companies, um, you know, over the last 10 years. And I would agree with the panellists here that a lot of that work has been done by, you know, the companies that you see successfully, <laughs> today, the big U.S. companies, you know, they've, they've done a really good job of this. And what have they done differently? Well, they've put a lot of groundwork into having a holistic view of their data absolutely fundamental to to moving forward is being able to leverage that data for proactive insight. And that takes a lot (coughs) of work in systems, people, culture. Um, You have to break down the silos. So you have to also re-architect your development processes. So even just the way you approach developing applications has changed radically. And that has to do a lot with the different technologies that are available, this sort of native cloud approach. Um, Things like containers, microservices, all those things make your company much more agile and flexible and really ready to shift quickly and bring things to market quickly and bring things to market cheaply so you can have play and test new business models. Um, I would say that financial institutions that haven't started yet it's probably too late for them so if you look at where we're we going to be in 2025 well if um, if they haven't really started on this journey yet and you know a few of the banks that have been mentioned here are probably the ones that are still muddled for different reasons or trapped in in their old way of doing things i just i just don't think they're going to have time to change so you'll see those kind of companies being merged or acquired or you know just just um sort of falling to the wayside. So I think what's going to happen is in, in the capital market space, just like a lot of other spaces, they have to become much more customer centric. There will be you know two ways you can go. You can own that customer relationship and that entails a certain way of doing things in terms of business model and technology, or you can actually become this sort of service provider. So this idea of as a service, we talked about it today. There'll be platform providers, you know, people who become very good at certain things from a, a delivery point of view. They can provide the sort of infrastructure, and they may not have that client-facing um, part of the business anymore, but that's okay. There'll still be room for those. And that will be maybe the smaller fintechs and other, you know, other banks maybe that just decide that they're going to become these as-a-service providers. Um, yeah, so that's where. Uh, <laughs> I, what you're saying, I, I,
2: again, I'm kind of fascinated why the Americans have been able to do this and the Europeans, by and large, haven't. GDPR. I mean, are we are we crippling European institutions with regulation which is OTOs unnecessary, too expensive, whatever? I mean, is there something about the American approach, perhaps because? You know, the American financial regulatory system is so awful that you can kind of work around it. Here, it's a little bit, you know, people know what they're supposed to do. So there's never been a regulator who doesn't see a regular, you know, doesn't like every regulation that he or she sees. Um, And there's a tendency in Europe to be, as it were, more prescriptive than there is in the US. I don't know. Is, is, do, you, do you think that when it comes to things like data, data things like GDPR, are, are a big problem for us? Well,
5: GDPR is very, you know, it's relatively recent, so I would say no. I mean, this goes right back to immediately after the crash. I think just the attitude of different banks, and I think you know, this has been discussed at the panel already. is just that very ruthless approach to saying, you know, what is making us money, what isn't. And also a risk-taking culture. I think that is also a more American, and that's what we see in Silicon Valley as well. People say, "Why haven't we had a huge fintech?" You um, know, why we had had some of these success stories here. This risk-taking, as well, going out on a limb with some of these new, from my perspective, going out on a limb with some of these new technologies, making that investment, and really putting senior-level support behind it, has made the difference. Whereas some of the European banks, uh, I think they are very siloed culturally and they don't have that risk taking culture.
4: Yeah,
2: does anyone on the panel disagree with that or wish to reinforce it?
4: Well, I'll just add you know, I think capital raising in Europe is 80% for corporates, is 80% bank loans, and capital raising in the US is 80% capital markets. So maybe that's why you've seen the capital being raised um, that you need to make those investments in those technologies.
2: Well, that's, that's that's why we're here. I mean, Capital Markets Union is supposed to reverse that. Exactly. Um, but it's failed so far. Uh, nobody seems to have a feeling that it's going to succeed, at least in, in the kind of time frame we're well, talking about. I,
0: I would question the basic assumption that somehow raising money or getting funding from the capital markets is better than getting it through a bank loan or debt or any other approach. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily subscribe to that. But let me say, God bless America, it's... Uh, um, uh, that you know, it, it's a great market and, and, and it works very well. But uh, I, I can't say that the, the fundamental premise that we need to get European companies to get equity finance and public equity markets, because that's the way to go, I don't follow the line of reasoning. I don't see it.
4: But in a, but in a post-crisis where capital is constrained on the banks to lend money, then it's inevitable you're going to be finding it harder to raise capital, right? Sure,
0: I mean, but then that will take care of itself, right? Uh, if I can't raise money here, I'll go someplace else. And get but it you're there. also
2: looking at PE, you're looking at private equity. I mean, how, how do you feel about that going uh, forward?
0: How do I feel about private equity? Mm. In, is, in this
2: a, is this a, a viable alternative to, to public markets?
0: Well, definitely. I mean, if you look at the US markets too, you have to recognise that over the course of the past 20 years, the number of publicly traded companies had been divided by two. Mm. There are half as many publicly traded companies now in the US than there were 20 years ago, before the crisis. There's been a huge, huge reduction in the number of firms listed on, on the markets in the US.
2: With, in your opinion, no deleterious impact on the American economy?
0: I can't say it would have a, a, an impact one way or another, Um, I think that's one form of funding that is legitimate, is is the public equity market. I think a lot of firms uh, in the U.S. have actually actively avoided going public for as long as possible or have gone private even in some cases because they wanted to avoid some of the regulations, some of the, first of all, the disclosures and the regulations and things of that sort that they didn't want to have to be
3: subjected to. It's probably worth noting that private equity is not – it's not behind some black curtain, right? I mean, the, the investors in private equity funds are the same as they would be institutional investors in the public markets. It's pension funds, it's university endowments, it's retirement plans. Um, so, and and by the way, I think one of the interesting innovations that we've seen, particularly with Uber, is that you had um, during this prolonged period of staying private, uh, new sources of funding that we hadn't really seen before. So. You had access by high net worth private clients of Morgan Stanley and Fidelity actually being able to access those shares in the private market, um, even though they're they're you know theoretically you know just normal high net worth individuals. So I think that was a that was a pretty pretty big change. And I think you know the question we should be asking ourselves um, is actually why was it so advantageous, or maybe it wasn't, to avoid going public for as long as it was. Is, do we have a regulatory regime and a system around public markets that's uh, exceptionally onerous on on those companies? And your answer to that is yes or no? Um, my answer to that is goes back to my point earlier about capital, and that is that co- coinciding with this sort of low interest rate environment or, or cause of the low interest rate environment is actually that we have a lot of capital available that we don't have as many productive places to, to to deploy it as we would like, and that the power dynamic between highly successful entrepreneurs, such as those in Uber or previously in Facebook or in Slack or in Palantir or whatever, um, has fundamentally changed. So um, because people are on such a quest to find attractive investments and places to put their money to work, um, those, those CEOs and entrepreneurs have unprecedented uh, power and ownership over those companies. It's also the same exact reason why we have this new phenomenon of uh, dual share classes that's a relatively, it's not a new concept, but its proliferation is new. Um, we saw a revolt at the Facebook annual meeting, and you know what, 80% of the common shareholders said no to a joint executive uh, um, a CEO and chairman role for Mark Zuckerberg. And Mark Zuckerberg took his 53% and said, thank you very much, I'm going to stay. So I mean, it's that, po- and you know what? Facebook hasn't suffered and share uh, value as a result of that, doing perfectly fine. And again, it, it speaks to that power dynamic between excessive capital and limited places to put it.
2: Questions for the panel? In that case, Kirsten, your views on this.
4: So just to give context, um, so, IHS Market, For those that don't know, uh, we're essentially a data technology and solutions firm, but primarily a data firm. And You're basically, in the area where you can pay your school fees for the next
2: fifty years, aren't you? Data is what it's all about.
4: I mean, data is definitely a, you know a growth area. I mean, we're much broader than financial services as well, right? So we're in energy, chemicals, maritime and trade, defence, automotive. So it's much broader than financial services. Um, and and but it's really not just about the data. It's but being able to use that data to provide unique insights so that customers can do something with it, right? And I mean, that's where the real value add is in terms of, it's not it's not like where you're the sole source of the data and you, know, you just set your prices and off you go. It's, it's much broader than that. Um, I think in terms, of, um, in terms of my role, I mean, I, I look after the um, product management for the um, market serve bit, which is the OTC derivatives processing side of it. So in terms of capital markets, um, we're very much focused on the wholesale OTC markets. Um, and what we see really is a world, over the last 10 years at least, that's a lot more fragmented. Um, the regulatory landscape is still rapidly evolving. It's evolved a lot over the last 10 years, but it's still rapidly evolving. There's still a lot of uncertainty over where it's going next. You know, we have new rules coming out of the CFTC. Then there's a change of chairman. The Rules will change again before they ever actually get implemented. You know, there's a lot of change going on, a lot of uncertainty in those markets. And what that really means is whether you're a solutions provider or or a firm operating in those markets, really the ability to be uh, able to adapt quickly in the nimblest way possible is really essential. Um, And I think, you know, over the next six years, so taking us out to 2025, these kind of three areas I would focus on, I mean, there's more than this, but the three areas I would focus on is technology, which we've touched on a bit earlier, um, you know, digitization amongst the banks, amongst the firms, adoption of things like cloud, microservices, platforms a service, which we're, you know, migrating platforms off mainframe uh, for exactly this purpose. So we can actually cope with this re- fast pace of regulatory change and market change. Um, so really technology is kind of the big thing Um, but from our side in that we're we're changing I mean we're probably you know we haven't got all that legacy but still we're having to rapidly evolve to keep pace Um, I think the other thing which you know is probably a bit specialist for this audience but you know I think the biggest thing for capital markets from our perspective is going to be eyeball reform so you know I think and Andrew CSFI did a session on it last week you know extremely well attended session and the reason for that is because that's the biggest change for the industry and, and transitioning to that supposedly by 2021, but probably by 2025 in some cases for, for some currencies, um, you know, that's going to be a huge change for the industry. And there's a lot of risk and a lot of, uh, um, you know, work that will be needed to, to evolve to risk-free rates, to term risk-free rates um, and dealing with, you know, all the associated costs, not just on the derivatives markets, but the loan markets, the cash markets, Um, you know, it's going to be a huge challenge. And I think, you know, we're probably going to end up focused on that. We've already been focused on it for two years. We're probably going to end up focusing on it for the next six years as well. Um, The third thing is really broadly globally market structure. I think Brexit's part of that. You know, CMU's definitely part of that. I think the growth of emerging markets, particularly China um, and India, um, is definitely definitely part of that. Um, And I think, you know, in terms of Brexit specifically, I think even if Brexit didn't happen or it happened very cleanly very quickly people have already made a lot of changes people have set up new entities people have got new um you know new offices new models that they're operating under today in anticipation of brexit and even if it didn't happen i think some of those changes would stay you know people have looked at their business models they've realized maybe they were misaligned um to the customer and as part of their preparations for brexit have actually addressed that already and actually even if you stopped it now you know why would you unaddress that so i think um, but market structure more generally, I think, really, it's much more global. And I think, you know, the, the biggest challenge we see, and as I touched on earlier, is, is fragmentation. And, you know, where you had, um, you know, firms dealing with maybe a broker um, 10 years ago, which operated out of one entity, you know, you're probably dealing with that broker today. Um, who's probably operating eight or nine trading venues in different jurisdictions? Probably also oper- operating as a broker in f- in four or five different jurisdictions, just so that they can pro- provide the universal broking model to their bank and, and client customers. So we talk about universal banks. You know, that universal brokerage model um, is kind of uh, had to adapt to regulation. And I think you know this this sheer fragmentation in the market. Um, you know, technology can help with fragmentation. Technology can help. Um, you know, bring liquidity together. Um, it can help post trade Certainly, that's what we do in terms of you know keeping the plumbing, keeping um, you know life as simple as possible for people. Where you've got standardised workflows, regardless of where you trade it, regardless of who you traded it with, regardless of where you're clearing it. But ultimately, you know that huge fragmentation um, has has driven a lot of change in the market, and I think that will continue to to be so. And if you, if you look at CMU, because I mean you put it on the sheet, so we, we should at least touch CMU. What's it trying to address? I mean, in my view, there's three things it's trying to address: capital markets architecture. So they're trying to do that through data standards. You know, we're always trying to create data standards, and you know, this will definitely drive another attempt to to standardise data. Um, it's trying to deal with fragmentation. If you think Mifid one, right, it brought in competition, but then created fragmentation of data, created dark pools. Now with consolidated tape. They're trying to bring that fragmented data back together so that people can have the competition in the market, but ultimately get a single source of access to that to that transparent data. Where do you start with CTP? I was at an event um, you know, in Brussels a, w- a week ago where they're you know, trying to get to the bottom of how they're going to solve this problem. And the first thing on the list is standardisation. If you can't standardise, if you can't define what your fields are, if you can't define how you're going to get it there, what APIs you're going to use, what, what data models, you're, never, you're going to create a consolidated tape of a mess, and you know you've got you know consolidating lots of different data with all different formats is not going to help anyone. So it's really starting back as always with standardisation um, and bringing that fragmented data together and creating that transparency. Um, and I think you know that that's clearly the first focus. I think you know obviously the other two main focuses are capital raising and I, I touched on the stats earlier, um, and also retail investment participation. I mean they're clearly. Uh, you know, goals, and to your earlier point, it's going to be a challenge to reverse those models where you know you're you're heavily in a saving culture, not an investing culture. Um, and I think you know CMU will will achieve some things. I think it's not too overambitious. I mean some of those are quite you know ambitious, but particularly around some of the smaller items, I think it's not too overambitious and it's possibly um, if it if it goes the right way with the right level of focus possibly achievable. Um, but I think' they're, you know they're the key areas I think from our perspective of what we'll, uh, what we'll be focusing on for the next six years and possibly you know for the next ten years. Can I ask you a question I mean I, I, I'm confused in my mind
2: we, we talk a lot about the problems of legacy systems the the pace of technological change and yet we tend to look at the the power of the incumbent and we uh, scale is important isn't aren't the isn't the capital markets ripe for the kind of picking off of individual businesses by tech-based firms that don't have a legacy problem, that can take a small slice, as in the foreign exchange market, you know, it started in the retail area with, with smaller companies coming in and just eating the lunch of the people who have big legacy systems? You, I mean, is that, is that possible over the next six, six, month, six years that we will actually see, see this happening?
4: Yeah, and I mean, I think two things drive it. One is regulation, one is technology, right? I think you gave an example. I mean, everybody, every firm mentioned so far is a customer of ours, so I don't want to name specific firms, but, you know, you have seen examples and you tend to see examples where volumes are high, liquidity is high, right? Trades are smaller. So FX is a classic example of that, right? It's a very liquid market, you know, high volumes of trades, lower ticket sizes. In wholesale markets where a certain tenor of swap might trade seven times a day, and that's one of the liquid ones, you know, you're know, you not going to see some HFT shop come in and storm the market, right? It's just mm-hmm. not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we thought, and going back to predictions, we thought eight years ago, um, as, as all the reform was starting to come in, that what you would see in the swaps markets was lots more trades with a much smaller ticket size. You know, if you take... Interest rate slots, maybe the average tickets, maybe you know two hundred and fifty million, maybe five hundred million. Haven't looked at it recently, but the we thought that you'd get a huge amount of trading at the one, two, three million size, and and that the market would explode in terms of number of trades. Hmm. It hasn't happened, right? You've got a few small trades, a few extra small trades going on, but you still got people wanting to hedge half, you know, 500 million. They don't want to hedge a million, a million, a million, a million, 500 times. Right? They want to hedge, do one trade and close it out. So you haven't seen that move from a large wholesale market to a highly liquid, much smaller size market in those in those OTC markets, except FX, which has always been more inclined to that. Well, I would just
0: say that interest rate swaps is probably a market that doesn't really appeal to resale investors, right? So it's not the kind of product you trade and to even be interested in interest rate swap, you need to be of a certain size. So you need to be a big insurance company or a pension fund or something of that sort, which means you're moving particular volume. Um, it's not like the equities markets or FX,
4: where you might have lots of small transactions going on. But you definitely had market makers come in to try and you know, stimulate that. Yeah, definitely.
2: So, yeah. so scale is inherent in the uh, in the capital markets in a way it isn't in the retail markets?
0: No, no I think in retail markets, scale is really important too, probably more so.
2: Vivek, I want to make sure that you get a, a sure. chance to, yeah. to tell us what the solution is. It's obviously going to be AI, and then we're going to argue <laughs> about what AI means, and what this is artificial or augmented intelligence.
1: <laughs> right, right, yeah. I mean, uh, my most distinguished fellow you know, you know, uh, panelists didn't really leave a lot for me to speak about, but, <laughs> but just a couple of things that I think I can make, uh, and I think I can see the struggle here uh, in terms of, like, while everyone agrees, that there is uh, the data is a key ingredient for innovation and i think being bankers we all know that like you know banks have more data than what they than uh, you know they know what to do with that so why is it that there is no i mean you don't hear of banks as being the top top innovators like if you look at any report they will probably not appear in the top 10 and certainly maybe like you know even top 20 or 30 like you know uh, uh, firms worldwide you will not see a bank being reported as a top innovator the second thing that i uh, i i want to uh, talk about is uh, andrew you mentioned like you know are the regulators like you know crippling the industry and like you know stultifying the the, the the innovation but at least some of them right and i hope i see this very carefully some regulations i think are very key for uh, very key for innovation in fact I think they will bring about regulation in 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 the capital markets energy so let me make my case for that uh what
2: names on it well, who, who are the good guys in this
1: <laughs> so yeah so uh, <clears throat> so to uh, answer the first you know question that I that I posed was why is it that there is so much of data that is available if the banks don't have any data I'm sure I just can sell it to them uh, why is it that they are not is still known, or they have not been able to make inroads into being like an innovative, innovative firm, right? I think it's not about just having data, but it is having what what data are we talking about? If you if you talk to a data scientist, right, and you ask them because banks now are, are hiring tons of data scientists, right, and if you ask them what do, what does your day look like, what do you do, so. Data scientists are theoretically supposed to, like you know, find models and find correlations and, like you know, do all that cool stuff. But what they end up doing is, like, 80% of their time just being, like you know, fair to them and being conservative. In fact, uh, they spend time in actually just collecting data, collating it, bringing it, bringing it into a form that they can then use for the for the analysis. So the actual data science work that they do is probably hardly 20% of that, right? and which, in my opinion, is the biggest bottleneck. Because if you look at the banks, while they have a lot of data, it is all very siloed. If you have, uh, until like five, six years back, risk systems had a totally separate pipeline of data. Finance system had a totally separate, you know, pipeline of data. It was not until the BCBR 239 came in, which forced the banks into saying that you need to prove to me that the data based on which you do your own risk management is also the data that you report in your financial books. Was there was, was when there was a massive reconciliation exercise and a lot of risk and finance integration exercises were started in the, in the banks? But what a good, uh, like, like a side effect of that is that now you have in one repository data coming from both risk and from finance available in one manner. So the job that a data scientist would have. Uh, or the task that a data scientist would have had to do uh, to source data from various sources, getting all those approvals, and bringing them in and putting them into one single repository, has been made possible because of this regulation. To take more examples, if you look at, for example, C-car, again, a very, very cross-functional initiative across, like, you know, it requires data from across the organizations, like even your HR data has to be pulled in, and like, you know, uh, from pretty much every, like you know, facet of the organ- organisation, data has to be pulled in and brought together to be able to do the rep- kind of reporting that CCar wants us to do, right? So, and uh, if if not for that regulation, data scientists would have been spending that time bringing that data and then like you know making that. So that's why I believe uh, regulations are kind of also helping helping kind of uh, put together the right ingredients uh, to make innovation. To make innovation possible, uh, so uh, so two things. One is data is not just like any data; it has to be available in a form that is consolidated. And I think uh, I know, uh, Kristen uh, talked about uh, uh, like a standard model. But you know, uh, these regulations are actually forcing the banks to come up with that standard model. When you uh, you know. Uh, if, Without having the risk data and the finance data available in the same format, you 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 possibly cannot do that reconciliation that the regulators are wanting us to do. So, uh, what I really want to say is that you know uh, uh, these regulations are helping bring that uh, like the right ingredients, like you know uh, water and sunlight. And once you have that, the life is 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 kind of you know kind of uh, bound to spring.
2: Water and sunlight, and it needs shit to make it grow. Uh, but uh, let me ask you—you you brought up the eighty-twenty rule. Yep. As far as I can see, eighty percent of the time is collecting the
4: data; twenty percent of the time is analysing it. You're in the data business—is that fair? Um, I, I think I'll take the case of, you know, reporting of um, OTC derivatives. I mean, eighty percent of the time is collecting it, and then twenty percent of the time is getting it into the fifteen different formats you need to report the same <laughs> trade in, so that you can be compliant with all the regulations. Um, no, I mean... I you're think you're that, less optimistic
2: about <laughs> the regulations. <laughs> but to
4: answer, to answer your question more broadly... Uh, the, the, I mean, look, we're trying. Right? We CPMI, OSCO, they're trying to bring out standards that then they're all going to rewrite the regulations to follow to get to a standard. So there's, there's efforts going on to try and make it happen, but the start point was a fairly fragmented spot. I think more broadly yeah, I mean, you know, collecting the data, get, scrubbing the data, getting, you know, in your tra- data warehouse or whatever you want to call it is a lot of work. Once you've got it, you can spend 20% of your time analysing it. And that's probably, you know, gradually over time, that will probably come down and you spend less time collecting it and more time analysing.
2: Others on the panel? I mean, Monica, do you what your view on that?
5: Well, I, w- I would agree with, with what was said about data. You know, it has to be in a format. And that's, you know, what I was saying about these firms that they've the ones that have gotten to a point where they can have a holistic view of their data, so they've broken down those silos, then they can start doing the work on the proactive insights. And that's where the value comes. The value isn't in pulling all this stuff together. Um, Just on the regulatory front, though, another sort of bright spot, I think, for Europe, I wanted to highlight, we haven't really mentioned crypto assets. But I think in that respect, um, you know, the regulatory climate is much more supportive in Europe than in the U.S. In
2: Europe or in the U.K.?
5: In, in Even in the U.K., I think, versus the U.S. it's not, better. not
2: even in the U.K. Surely we're ahead of our friends across the <laughs> channel, are we not?
5: Oh, no, no. We've got Malta and Switzerland. Oh,
2: Malta. There's Estonia. no regulation in Malta.
5: <laughs> no, they're doing the, those. Actually, there's a lot more regulatory clarity in those areas. Now, the FCA, I think, has done some very good work, but... Um, <coughs> Now, there's, there's probably more clarity in other jurisdictions. But all told, I think Europe's doing a better job than the US. And that's, you know, when we look at the future of capital markets, there's a lot of really interesting things. And in what you said about picking off different areas, I think the blockchain and crypto assets is, is targeting certain areas that, you know... Issuance in private securities and loans to SMEs, and these are areas that right now are very manual. you know a lot of work is done on paper or spreadsheets, and there isn't really a lot of um, connections to worry about, so that's I just hesitate to,
2: to ask, but you are obviously a blockchain aficionado <laughs> um,
5: I believe in it.
2: <laughs> this is permissioned or unpermissioned, and if it's a permissioned blockchain, is it a blockchain? You have given that's the a very, to That's a That's
5: a very good point. Yes, enterprise blockchains generally run the gambit from pure blockchain to distributed databases, but it, it's still put under that sort of DLT blockchain banner. And I uh, think uh, it's going to be more the permission side, the, the less pure public the public blockchains will come into effect for anchoring information, so you can periodically snapshot to the, the ways you can use public. But I think there will be.
2: A can lot can I just ask, ask the panel, though, I mean, on on the re, on regulation? Has regulation kept up with the changes in the industry that it's regulating? I mean, we hear a lot about reg tech. Um, and the things that technology can do to make regulation catch up. But there is this feeling that the regulators are kind of lagging behind the changes in the industry. Phil, do you feel that way? There are
3: no regulators watching you. Maybe there are. <laughs> I, um, I'm probably in the minority, but I don't actually have that, uh, had that view. Um, I, I tend to think um, inactivity by regulators and being laggards is, is a virtue. Um, and so, you know, I think that the, the commentary about the U.S. SEC view on um, cryptocurrencies is interesting. It, it really boils down to a question as to whether or not they constitute a <laughs> security and therefore fall under um, some of the the rules that are associated there. Although not all cryptocurrencies are considered um, securities under the SEC rules, um, but no, I I don't actually have that concern. Octavio.
0: I, I suppose, I think regulation always has to lag uh, the, the markets. It's, it's always fairly reactive. And I, I think we see that certainly uh, around the world, that there's they're, they're probably 10 years behind uh, where, where the markets are. And it takes that long to get agreement and consensus in terms of what the new regulation should be. So... Um, I mean, how long did it take to define Mifid two? I mean, it took the best part of seven years, and then three years to implement, and and so that's the kind of life cycle you see there. Uh, and now we're already started to talk about Mifid three um, as being sort of the next cycle of that. So I think the the the, the very nature of regulation is that it's going to to lag uh, markets, and I think in in that case, you know, if you look at something like uh, what Philip was talking about in terms of. Uh, are certain tokens or issues or cryptocurrencies, are there securities? I think it's much better to have sort of a principles-based approach there and say, you know, if it, if it looks like a security and if it's an ownership in a company and it's traded publicly, then that is a security and it comes under the regulations. The tec- technical implementation of that shouldn't really matter. What, what matters is sort of the economic content of it, uh, not the,
2: the the technological implementation of it. Let me, let me ask our panel to, to, to jump ahead to 2025 and to ask them where they think the big changes in the capital markets will have happened between now and then. First, Vivek. I mean, I assume this is going to be on the take-up of esoteric technology.
1: <laughs> no, no. Uh, so, so, so I think uh, if you look at the uh, big areas, right, uh, uh, I think disintermediation of the banks, I think, is definitely one thing which uh, technology can enable. It has shown that to happen in, in in other areas. If we look at, for example, Uber or Airbnb, that is where I think some of the big, you know, the big changes have happened. And I think technology has the potential to do that. So I think that will be, in my opinion, one area where technology can really play a role and kind so of... So
2: what's going to be the Uber of the capital markets?
1: Uh, it, we are already seeing that in some way, like uh, in terms of P2P lending, for example, where the the investors. I mean, what are really banks doing, right? They're bringing the, like, you know, people with, with money and people who need the money together. And uh, you don't really need to pay the 2%, right, to, to be able to do that. And a good platform with the right controls, I think, uh, you know, can,
4: uh, can do it. Kirsten, where do you think the changes are coming? So I was just, I was just thinking at that point, actually, um, I, I think we might be regulating shadow banking a bit more. Um, you know, I think there's definitely been a, a push out of, out of, in some areas, outside of the banks. Um, there's a good chance we might be regulating af- after the next crisis. I think, you know, what that will be will be to be determined, but I think there's a good chance we're, we're now re- re-regulating something else. Um, but I think, actually, probably, you know, Although some stuff will change, I actually think probably less will change than we might imagine in the next six years. I think, you know, <coughs> we're partway through a, a change cycle, but I actually think, you know, probably more in 10 years, you'll you'll see more fundamental structural changes than probably in the next six.
2: But in the meantime, data and data flows. There's so much data that just
4: learning to use the data that we have better. Uh... I, yeah, and cross-correlation between different asset classes of data. So, you know, some of the stuff we're doing around bringing together energy data with chemicals data, with shipping data, with financial data, and seeing cross correlations and using that. Um, You know, I think, you know, that that kind of stopping looking at data in individual silos to solve specific problems and actually looking at it more holistically and bringing together different data sets. um, You know, I think there's a lot of firms doing a lot more with that. And I think that will continue. Monica.
5: Yeah, I think as um, firms get better at really understanding the data they have and the customers will be able to profile their customers better and as regulators, I think, get better at understanding how they need to protect retail and less sophisticated investors through to more sophisticated, we're going to see, I think, more integration of banking services. So behind the scenes, you know, if you're a more sophisticated investor, you will have a broader suite of services available to you in one place because the banks will understand your needs. You won't need to go to so many different places to get, you know, a loan here, a mortgage here, you know, get your day-to-day banking here. They'll be more packaged. Um, but that that's what has to change, is the regulators have to start seeing the customers individually and regulating appropriately, and the banks have to be able to service those customers as separate entities.
2: Octavio?
0: I, I think... Um to echo some of those points uh, in terms of disintermediation I, I think maybe a sort of a, a trend we'll see uh in the capital markets might be a sort of trend for what i refer to as platformification and i should explain what i mean by that i think increasingly large broker dealers and banks will say i don't need necessarily need to produce everything that i sell i might not be the best at FX trading, but I can sell that to my client if someone else produces it. I might not have to provide corporate bond trading or be the actual bond traders, but I can provide that service to my client. So there's a whole bunch of different uh, instrument classes where I might say to myself, I don't necessarily have to produce that. I can resell somebody else's, white label it and push that out into market. And I can therefore get the necessary scale to be cost effective there. Uh, without actually having to do that. I'll still have all the customer-facing activity, all the know-your-customer and anti-money laundering thing and the regulatory compliance end of things, and I'll still be the brand facing the customer. Uh, But in the back, I'll have a lot of other financial institutions providing different areas for me. Isn't
2: isn't that exactly what Monzo is doing in the retail area? It's selling a hub-and-spoke system where it is the hub and it is the trusted hub. Are you suggesting that that Will work in the, in the ca- wholesale market? Uh, it
0: does to a certain extent already. It's not unusual for one bank to basically, you know, uh, to, to white label, for example, Citibank's FX trading activities and provide it that way. So, it's sort of smaller regional banks might well do that and say, we don't have an FX trading desk, but we will resell Citibank. But I would see that model creeping up into much larger areas uh, and across other instrument classes. Yes, and exactly. It hub and spoke if you want, yes, but that, that kind of model where you're reselling other people's where you don't necessarily have the scale to, to, to compete.
2: Phil, the last word is with you. Where do you see
3: this, this industry in, in, in six years and what are the big changes between now and then? I think um, picking up on some of the points that we started with, um, the banks will have retrenched significantly. So, And that won't just take the form of exiting large businesses or geographies. There will be an ongoing uh, activity to rationalize balance sheet activities on a customer by customer even a trade by trade basis using the power of data analytics. Um, In the asset management world, I think we'll expect some further consolidation. The move to passive will pick up speed. Um, The tide will go out in private capital markets and we'll see the type of performance in the PE and venture capital world that we saw in the era immediately following financial crisis. And then the use of technology will accelerate even faster. So we're seeing Amazon and Apple get into the consumer payment space. I think that that pick up that will continue um, to pick up momentum, and we'll enter. They'll see the they'll be in B two B as well, and start to disrupt transaction banking. And then lastly, um, of the of the sort of newer emerging technologies or enablers, as we call them, um, cloud and RPA will continue to pick up steam. And I think you know we're we're sort of heading for the bottom of the hype cycle on DLT. It will sort of retrench and pick up speed with a fewer number of use cases, and those will be very specific um, and with a high degree of uptake for those. But the widespread adoption we will see much more in RPA and cloud. Well,
2: that's the problem with DLT is, that, as friends of mine say, there's nothing that you can do with conventional technology that you can't do with DLT. It's not much slower and it's not much more expensive. Uh, the other thing, of course, that we haven't mentioned is that in six years' time we'll all probably be speaking Chinese and it will be Ant and Tencent that's actually running the world. So can I thank all of you for coming? Can I thank all of our panellists, Kirsten, Philip, uh, Octavio, Monica, and Vivac. Thanks to all of you. Thank
0: you for listening. You can find out more information about attending our talks and events at www.libf.ac.uk forward slash events. If you want to get involved or have any feedback, please contact us at podcastlibf.ac.uk.